in uh, keeping with the earlier country theme, the story is told. In a small town way out in the country, a local farmer invited the new preacher and his wife to come out to the farm for dinner. And while the women were finishing preparations in the kitchen, the men talked in the living room. Well, the father was in the middle of telling the preacher that because he was sure that most preachers liked chicken, that's what he asked his wife to prepare. And overhearing the conversation, the farmer's young son playing nearby spoke up and said, But Daddy, I thought it was buzzard, not chicken, that we were eating today. He said, Buzzard? Of course not. Where'd you get an idea like that? He goes, well, I overheard you telling Mommy that we ought to hurry up and have that old buzzard for dinner and get it over with. (laughs) And so I'm sure that that was an interesting conversation later in that evening, a dinner that will not soon be forgotten. You know, and the same can be said of a dinner Jesus was invited to attend that is recorded for time and eternity in Luke's eyewitness account of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. You know, if you'll take your Bibles with you and me, turn to Luke chapter 14, where we are invited through the Word of God to have dinner with Jesus. Luke chapter 14, starting with verse 1, we find these words recorded for us. It says, And it came about that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, that they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a certain man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you shall have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guest when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited both shall come and say to you, give place to this man, and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you're invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and repayment come to you. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And when one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A certain man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour he sent a slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they, all alike, began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I've married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to the master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to a slave, Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the slave said, Master, what we have commanded has been done, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. 
And the master said to the slave, Go out then into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste of my dinner. You know, in another Sabbath setting, Jesus continues to evidence God's presence, and yet he continues to receive rejection from the leadership. You know, you'd think that having Jesus to dinner at your home would be a time of great rejoicing. You know, think about that thought for a second. You know, Jesus, Emmanuel, God is with us. For unto us a child is born, a son will be given. And the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and Everlasting Father. To think about the fact that the God of the universe came to dinner at this man's house, you would think it would be a time of tremendous rejoicing. And yet, as we find from this text, it became a time instead of great rejoicing, but one of godly rebuke. And in fact, that's the outline, basically, in simple form that will follow as we go through it. It's a time that should have been a time of rejoicing, but it became a time of rebuke. And we'll see exactly why that is. You know, the first thought that we have here, Jesus rebukes the people that were there. And there's four different types of people that are represented in this passage. The first one is what we'll call inflexible people. And we see that again in verses 1 through 6. And it came about when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, that they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a certain man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? The rebuke is found in the form of requesting an answer to his question. You know, you'll notice as we see this that it said that uh, this man was sitting in front of him, and there was, never a, there was never anything that was asked of him, but it said in, in verse 3, Jesus answered them. And I like that because basically he was answering what they had done. And what they had done was they set this man before him as they have on numerous occasions, and they wanted to see what he was going to do about it. They didn't have to say anything because their actions spoke volumes as to what was in their hearts and on their minds. And so he answered them, and by the way of answering them, it wasn't something spoken, it was something that was done. He answered what they had done. Putting this man before him, he answered them and said, Let me, you know what, is it lawful or not to heal on the Sabbath? You know, how many times has he had this conversation with these people? You know, in the book of Luke alone, we see five times, nine times altogether in Scripture, we see that Jesus did things on the Sabbath, and, and particularly in healing others, to make a point. You know, a spiritual truth that he was trying to convey to them that they would hopefully one day see, but the reality of it was they just weren't catching on. And, as, you know, and, and yet, despite the miracles, you know, straightening the bent-over woman, healing a man with a withered hand, allowing his disciples to pick grain on the Sabbath, you know, healing a Peter, uh, Peter's mother-in-law of fever and casting out demons, these are things that we have already seen in our study uh, of Luke's gospel. And yet, despite the miracles, the religious leaders remained inflexible in their position. Continuing to accuse Jesus of wrongdoing, even after all of these warnings, Jesus' healings fail to bring about a change of heart or repentance on their part. You know, they would not budge in their wrong mindset. They were adamant in their wrong beliefs, and they refused to listen to God's truth. You know, God came to them, and they refused to listen. And the principle of all that is that, you know, eyes controlled by sin are stubborn and refusing to see and respond to God's word which the Bible tells us is profitable for teaching truth and correction and rebuke and training in righteousness. You know, eyes you know, that are, are controlled by sin are stubborn and refusing to see and respond to God's truth. And these men were a perfect example of that. 
They were inflexible. They weren't willing to listen to truth. They had made up their minds and, and, and they refused to look at the objective evidence. You know, as Jesus, you know, dines with the Pharisees, the religious leaders are watching him and that's no, you know, small uh, statement that is made. If you'll notice, it says very clearly in verse 1, and they were watching him closely. The, the, the verbiage means that they were watching him as an undercover officer or an undercover agent would watch a person that they believe is a criminal to, to see them and catch them in the act of committing a crime. They were watching Jesus not to hear truth. They were watching Jesus not to be open to truth. They were watching Jesus because they had already made up their minds against him. They hated him, and they had, they had conspired against him. They were going to find a way to make an accusation that they could be rid of him once for all. And they watched him closely. They wanted to see him make a mistake. They wanted to see him fall into this trap. And there's little doubt that the man suffering with dropsy, which was a form of disease that this man was swollen beyond recognition. All of his joints were swollen. He was swelled up. And they placed this man. Think about the the, the lack of compassion of people who would take somebody who was suffering like this man was and drag him into this dinner party and pluck him down in the front row in front of Jesus just to see what he would do. And they knew what he would do. Because he did it every time. Every time he saw someone hurting and in need, he healed their pain. They knew he would heal them. They knew that he would heal him, and they in turn thought, Aha, we got you again. You fell right into our trap. But as so often is the case, every time they laid a snare, they were the ones that fell into it. And as we look at this, this rebuke was in requesting an answer to his question in verse 5, which was, Is it lawful or not? Is it or isn't it? How many times are we going to have this conversation, fellas? Is it, is it right or wrong? Well, we're going to come back to that in a minute because he asked them, and a second way that Jesus rebuked them was by refusing to ignore the suffering of this man. As I mentioned, he healed him. And I like that the Bible tells us that he healed him and he sent him away in verse 4. What he was saying was, you know what, you're healed. Why don't you just go ahead and go on your way because I know you don't want to be here and I know why they dragged you here and now you can just go and you don't have to put up with this nonsense anymore, but I'm not done with these guys yet. So you go ahead and go because you want to stand back. You ever hear somebody say like this, oh, you know what, I, you know, God's going to, you know, and they're looking at the sky like, you know what, God's going to hit me with lightning. And I always say, well, you know what, I'll just take a couple steps away. You know, I, mean, I know God's a good aim, but if you think God's going to strike you with lightning, I'll just step back a second. You know, it's kind of like that attitude. And I was like, you know, I want you to just go because what I'm about to do here, you don't need to be a part of this. So go ahead and go. Have a good day. Have, have a nice life. Go. But as we look at this, we see that these people are so inflexible. And, and, and we see that they're inflexible because he revealed their hypocrisy. And he asked them a simple question. Which one of you shall have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they all just sat there and they listened. Hmm, good point. So now if you, the wicked people that you are, will help someone, a child or an ox, or a donkey, or something that falls into a well, if you'll help them on the Sabbath, don't you expect God, who created man in His image and likeness, a God who so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, a God who, when we're faithless, He's faithful, wouldn't you expect God 
to meet a need on the Sabbath, if you being evil will meet needs on Sabbath, how much more so should God be compassionate on the Sabbath? When are you guys going to catch on to this? And this whole inflexibility that we see on their part, it's, it's, it, it, you look at this and you go, how stubborn can these people be? And I like it says, you know what? And they could not answer him. And they made no response. They couldn't reply to this. See, isn't it true that sometimes the word of God just shuts us up? You're right. Guilty. I love when I was reading through the book of Job, and the book of Job tells us that Job, at one point, he put his hands over his mouth. And he goes, you know, sometimes that's what we need to do. You know, you know, I get all these self-help <clears throat> tapes that are out there. I always thought the best self-help tape for some of us is a roll of duct tape. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, hey, <laughs> it just stop. You know, and I love that. Joe was like, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll shut up and I'll listen to you. You're God, I'm not. Later on, when he finally did talk again, he said, you know what? I just want to say, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. I confess, I repent. And oh, and by the way, I'll ask you questions, and you can tell me. And isn't that where our, all of our hearts should be? See, their problem was, their heart wasn't, you know, Lord, let us ask you questions, and you being Lord, you teach us truth. And I'll listen. And we sit here today, and we can get kind of smug because we look at them and go, man, those guys are pretty stubborn. I mean, over and over again, we see the same thing. These people are so inflexible. They're dug in. They're, they're not going to budge. They're not going to admit when they're wrong. They're going to continue to hold on to wrong beliefs and wrong behavior because as if somehow to say, well, I have to admit that I was wrong. A broken heart. God doesn't despise. A contrite heart. A broken heart says, you know what, God, my bad. I'm wrong. Forgive me. I repent from it. But to hold fast on our stubbornness, to hold fast on our inflexibility is just foolishness. And before I move on, I have to ask the question of you that I ask of myself, and that is this. You know what, Chuck? How long does it take for God's truth to sink into your life? You may be sitting here today, and there are things that God has been saying to you that is, you know, you're wrong in your thinking. You're wrong in your behavior. How many times do I have to confront you with this truth before finally you will confess and agree with me of what I am saying and you will repent from it and then we can move on together in our relationship? How many times does God tell us the same thing and we as stubborn as and inflexible as the religious leaders of his day say, you know what, I'm not going to admit I'm wrong. We see it all the time in relationships, with our relationship with God, with our relationship with one another. We see that it's the underlying root problem in all of marriages where someone won't admit, hey, you know what, I'm wrong. What I said was wrong. What I thought was wrong. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And let's move on together. I'm wrong. We need to all practice that. You know what, my bad, I'm wrong. And I'm sorry. And will you forgive me? And we'll talk more about humility because it takes a humble spirit to be able to say, I'm wrong. They weren't willing to do that. They weren't willing to do that at all. And Jesus continues, and his graciousness continues to show them that, you know what, even though you're inflexible, I'm still reaching out to you. It wasn't just one time or two times or three times. It's, you know, it's here we are, five times later in the book of Luke, seven times later in the Gospels. You know, he's still telling them the same thing. Patiently, lovingly, gently, and they still are dug in and they're wrong. And he's not done trying to compassionately show them how wrong that they are. 
I would hope that you and I could become quick students to embrace God's truth in our life. You know, the leader's silence continues, but you know what? Nothing has been learned. Nothing has been confessed. There's been no repentance on their part. Despite this constant barrage of divine activity in their life, their position hasn't changed. And the passage confirms how strong sin's stubbornness can be. You know people, I know people, we've had conversation with people in our own families, in our own lives, in our own network of friends who have chosen to do wrong before God and we confront them in a spirit of gentleness and instruction and love and say the direction that you're going is wrong, the direction that you're taking is, is wrong before God and its end is destruction, the path seems to be right but its end is destruction and we try to help them and they look at you like, get out of my face, what do you know? Mind your own business. And we see marriages fall. We see people indicted on criminal charges. We see children's lives you know, destroyed because of the callous disregard of a man or a woman who choose to do wrong before God. And we see it as a nation as a whole. And we're confronted with God's truth and we're so quick to judge these men and say, man, look at how inflexible and stubborn they are and when we sit here in ourselves and we're just as guilty. We need to confess before God and agree with Him when we're convicted of the fact that what we're doing is wrong and what we think is wrong. We need to repent from it. And then we can move on together to accomplish the things God wants us to accomplish for His purposes and for His glory and for His kingdom's expansion. You know, we look at this, this the division between Jesus and religious, re- religiosity, you know, it, it remains. And so does the question of which way uh, we will choose if we want to know God. You know, this is no ordinary dinner party. This is no ordinary table talk that's taking place. You know, Jesus rebukes these inflexible people. He also rebukes in verses 7 through 11 what we'll call inflated people. People that are puffed up. He says, and he began speaking a parable to the invited guest when he noticed how that they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. And he was saying to them, when you're invited by someone to do a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you shall come and say to you, give place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. I mean, stop and think about this. You know, pride and social status are social issues in any culture. And the ancient Jewish culture, as we can see here, was no exception. You know, status brings power and power begets pride. And that's the dangerous equation that's destructive to spiritual health. The Bible clearly teaches over and over again that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That, you know, a haughty spirit goes before destruction, pride before the fall. You know, this prideful arrogance that's there. And the message that Jesus is teaching is that humility always precedes honor. Humility first and then honor. You know, and if this wasn't so tragic, it's hilarious because look at this scene. You know, the whole teaching began because Jesus stood back and he noticed how these people began picking out their places. Now, to understand the scene, what happens is when guests would come, they would go in and they would wash their hands. And after the washing of their hands, they would immediately go to the table where they were set up in U-shapes. So the tables would be set up this way, this way, and then this way would be the head of the table. And in the middle of that, that head table was the place of honor. And usually it was the person who was the host of the party. 
Now to the left and to the right were the distinguished seats of honor. That's why the disciples and throughout the, the, the Gospels are always debating and arguing about who's going to sit at his left and who's going to sit at his right. They never argued about who was going to sit in the middle. They conceded that to Jesus, but they came back to, well, you know what? There's two good seats on either side. And that's what their constant argument was about. And so what was taking place here, and Jesus noticed the scene, and it began to be a springboard to teach truth, but he noticed what happened was, as soon as they washed their hands, they all knocked each other over to get to those two seats. Can you imagine these, these dignified religious leaders washing their hands and then going, and boom, and just running to get to the seat. Hey, whoa, you know, pulling each other's, you know, each other's robes and stuff. It's like, hey, we got it. And they're diving, falling over. It's like, well, it's a fiasco. This is insane. And he goes, and that's why he said, well, wait a minute. You're going to go put yourself up there, but yeah, you know what? Maybe somebody here is more distinguished than you, and you've already sat down and thought, got me a good seat. Yeah, got me the place of honor. Sitting here on the right, sitting here on the left. You know, and they're doing high fives behind Jesus' back, you know. It's kind of like, you know. And then he goes, well, wait a minute now. Can you imagine how embarrassing it would be if, you know, the, the host said, oh, excuse me, you're in his seat. And then in the Greek, it's, it's, a, it's a digression from this place of honor to the last place in the very back, the end seat, the last seat. And that'd be a fun trip to watch that guy make. And that's the way it works. And he goes, well, how can such embarrassment be avoided? In verse 10, he says, listen, when you're invited, go and recline at the last place. So that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, and he may not, but he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. Saying, well, to avoid such an embarrassing faux pas in, you know, this social setting, take a seat in the last seat, because there ain't no lower seat than the last seat. And my wife said, you know, you said ain't twice last week. And, and I'm just keeping with the country western theme of the morning. But, there, you know, there's no lower seat than the last seat. And so it's like if you sit there, there's nowhere else to go but up. And so... I have applied this in my life in many settings. And I'll just share with you a couple, and then you take it for what it's worth. When I used to travel with the Rams, and I was invited to go on their charter, uh, when you first came into the airplane, the front half of the, of, the, of the plane was for what the guys affectionately refer to as looky-loos. And looky-loos were car dealers and advertisers and people that got to go as a spiff or you know, whatever their contribution business-wise was at. And so those people all sat up in the front, and all the players sat in the back. And so when I would walk into the plane, I would just stand there and move off to the side until someone told me, you know, this, you sit in this seat. And so I'll sit wherever. I'm just glad to be here. So I just sit in that seat. And I'd be sitting up there with all the looky-loos and, and um, you know, and, and the guys would start walking on the plane and, and we'd get ready and all of a sudden somebody would come up, Jackie or, or, or Kevin Green or somebody would come and say, what are you doing sitting up here? Say, I'm just sitting where I'm told to sit. You go, no, come on, you come back here and sit with us. And I thought, well, you know, that's a much better trip than going back assuming that I should be sitting back there <laughs> than saying, man, what are you doing back here? Look at you. Go up there with the looky-loos. <laughs> so I figure you can't go wrong, you know. It's like, I'll just sit here. And you know what? And, and he said, they may come or they may not come. And the reality of it was it really didn't matter because I was just glad to be there. I was a guest. 
You know, when I go to speak somewhere, even if I'm the, the featured or keynote speaker, I'll just go stand in the back of the room till the person that invited me or set it up, and I'll just say, where would you like me to sit? Because I'm not going to assume that I should be sitting up at the head podium or the head table, or it's like, because this is, this is a truth in God's word that is relevant for all of time and eternity. And that is, you know what? I'm just grateful that you want me to be here. I cannot wait to tell, you know, what, what it is that Jesus Christ has done in my life. And I'll sit in the back of the room. I'll stand out in the hallway until you want me to come in. But it really doesn't matter to me, and I'm not going to assume I should sit up at the front. You know, and I do that everywhere that I go. And it's not a false sense of humility that, oh, I sit up front because I know someone's going to come and bring me up to the, I mean, sit in the you know, front of the plane in this case or the back of the room in other cases. So because I know someone will come and then I can just parade myself up like, look who I am. I'm content that, you know what, just being in the room is okay with me. Being on the plane was okay. Being in the room was okay. Being at the stadium anywhere that I'm told to go. You can't go in there? I won't go in there. Where can I go? Where can we do chapel? Where is it okay that I can do that? Because it is a privilege to represent Jesus Christ and teach the Word of God in any circumstance and setting that God opens doors for us to share. And we are always to, to recognize that, you know what, we are to be humble before the Lord and before the world because it reflects the humility of Jesus Christ. Have this attitude in yourself which also existed in Jesus Christ, who though existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But He emptied Himself, He humbled Himself, He took on the likeness and the appearance of a man, He was obedient to God the Father and He he went to the cross and He gave His life for the sins of the world, effective for all, efficient for all, and and only applicable to those who will believe. And the Bible tells us that because uh, that He did this in humility, that God has given Him a name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He's Lord to the glory of God, Philippians 2. That passage starts with saying, have this same attitude. Consider others more important than yourself. Why do we have so much problem in the world? Because I didn't get my way. You got your way last time, I get my way this time. You got your way three other times, it's time for me to get my way. And that is just a a lie from the pit of hell. God says that, you know what, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. James tells us the same thing. Philippians does. And and 1 Peter 5 does. To subject yourself, submit yourself to those in authority. Being humble before men. Responding to authority. So that, you know what, because God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. How can we avoid this, this problem that we see here? You know, Jesus' point is not that we should connive to receive some type of honor. Rather, he's saying that honor is not to be seized. It is something that God awards. There's nothing wrong with recognizing people and giving people honor for what they've done. But honor isn't something that we seize and try to gain hold of. It's something that is rewarded to us as God sees fit in His timing and in His purposes and according to His plan so that we in turn can give all the glory back to Him. See, humility is not thinking meanly of ourselves. It's simply not thinking of ourselves at all. It's not even giving that a thought. It's not even giving ourselves a thought. What about me? Who, who cares about you? 
I mean, I just, aren't you so sick of hearing that? We're in a culture that's just, it's so just sickening. Well, what about me? What about my rights? What about my needs? What about me, 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 me? Well, what about you? No, God sees. I mean, he knows everything. He responded to a question that wasn't asked because he knew their thoughts. He knew their actions. He knew everything. God knows everything. David was exalted. He was a shepherd boy out in the fields doing what his father had asked him to do. And he wasn't seeking recognition. He wasn't seeking honor. He was just being obedient to what he was told to do by his father. And God honored him and called him out of the field and said, You know what? Now I will exalt you at the proper time. As we look at this, you know, how how can we maintain a humble spirit? And I'll just share with you some things that, that, you know, I I thought of from Scripture that, that are applicable in life. And 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says this, you know what, why boast about things that if everything that you have comes from God, why should you boast about what you have? And that simply means this, it doesn't matter what talent or ability that God has given you, God has given it to you, so why think so high and mighty about yourself? Because you know what, without God giving you what you have, you're nothing. I don't know if you ever picked up in scripture, but you know what, we're but dust. We're just dirt that God breathed life into. We're, the, we're, the, you know, we're the, the clay that the potter molds and forms. And say, like, now, what, what clay pot should tell the potter how to make it? How foolish is that? So all he says is, Chuck, everything that you have, your ability to speak, your ability to communicate, your ability to teach the word of God, your ability to make a living, your ability, you know, all of us, to be able to go out and do the things that we do, to be able to think and to breathe and to walk and to talk and to, and, and to do these things so that we can, you know, meet our earthly needs. He said, why should you brag about any of those things? The only reason your IQ is as high as it is is because I've given you the capacity and the ability to think. Yeah, you develop it and you've been disciplined and you study hard and you work hard and all those things and that's the beauty beauty of all of it, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, how it works in harmony. But at the end of all of it, you know what? If God didn't give it to you, you wouldn't have it. So how can you be boastful about yourself? Another way to stay humble is this. Go to the throne of God and see him in his perfection and his righteousness and his holiness and his purity as Isaiah did. And he said, oh, I am a man of unclean lips. How in the world can I think highly of myself compared to the excellencies of our God? Like me on the plane, just glad to be here. Just glad to be here. By treating people with respect and with dignity. All people, James says, you know what, don't just cater to the rich. Don't cater to the ones who are well-dressed. Don't cater to the ones who have the nice cars and the nice houses and they can take you to dinner and all these things. You know what, treat all people with respect and with dignity as those who are created in the image and likeness of their God. Don't just cater to those who can do for you. And that's the message that we'll see as we go to the next point. But all of this is, you know what, seeing our unworthiness compared to his radiance and his purity will cause pride to die and self-satisfaction to shrivel up. Jesus has already given those at dinner and us, I'm sure, plenty to chew on, but he's not finished yet. Notice the next thing, Jesus rebukes inviting people. And what he's saying is inviting people for the purpose of just getting a reciprocal invitation extended to you. And he also went up to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and repayment come to you. 
But in contrast to how you do things and your motivation, in contrast to that, when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the, righteous, or the resurrection of the righteous. See, he expands this picture of humility by exhorting this audience to invite people to the dinner table, those who are needy, those who cannot repay such kindness. You know, hospitality should be open to everybody. Now, somebody said, well, what's wrong with inviting? Look, there's nothing wrong with inviting your friends and your family and people to dinner that you like to spend time with and can invite you back. And, you know, we play this game all the time. You know, well, you bought last time. Oh, I'll buy this time. Oh, you bought last time. I think you bought last time. Oh, I think you did last time. Okay, go ahead. You can buy. You know, and it's, it's a good workout. It helps burn calories after meal. But, but the reality of it is, is that, you know what? What he's saying is there's nothing wrong with that. But see, what their problem was they thought that somehow they were being spiritual inviting people to dinner that would invite them to dinner. And they were overlooking everybody else unless they would just drag somebody in with a withered hand or somebody with a disease of dropsy just to try to catch Jesus. They didn't invite him for any other reason. They didn't want him there. And he's saying, look, but in contrast to how you always do things, why don't you open your heart a little bit wider to people that, you know, are literally strangers, which is what hospitality is all about. And that means this. To be lovers of strangers. And if we're lovers of strangers, they will see the love of Christ exhibited in us. You know, oftentimes, and I think this is a very applicable time to bring this up, and I want to be discreet about this, but because of the position that I'm in and because of some of the people that we have contact with, we'll notice people who will come to church that maybe play for the angels or the ducks or in other positions, and one of the things that I want to encourage all of you to consider is this. As, as much as you want to greet them and say hi to them and spend time with them, there's nothing wrong with any of that, by the way, but I want, I want to balance it with this. Please do the same to all strangers. Please do the same to every person that walks through the door. We're just as excited to see you even though we don't know you, as we are to see you because we see you on television playing a sport that God has gifted you to play. I want us to become a church. I want us to become a people who when we see somebody that we haven't seen before, as Jesus would, we would greet them and thank them for being here and welcome them to be with us, to worship our God and to share in the truth of his word. And and again, like I said, there's a balance to this. There's nothing wrong with any of these things. But let's stop and think about, are we that way with everybody or just certain people? God says, but instead of being like that with just certain people, be like that with everybody. And they'll see the love of Christ in our hearts and in our church and in our gatherings together. See... He says, in contrast, God's people are to be lovers of strangers and in order to show God's love to others and not to be put, you know, on someone's invitation list for future meals or gatherings. You know, it's just some dinner party, isn't it? I bet it was just as quiet there as it is here. (laughs) And probably even more so because they were a lot closer. See, some of you in the back, you know, you can get away with kind of looking around other places, you know, like, And so as we see this, you know, he rebukes inflexible people. These are people who refuse to change their wrong beliefs and behavior, even when confronted with the truth of God's word. 
You know, he, he rebukes inflated people, people who thought more highly of themselves than they should have that affected sound judgment. He rebukes inviting people for the sake of being invited by other people. There was no spiritual benefit whatsoever. He says, hey, when you go out and you extend yourself beyond your immediate circle and you start to love strangers, he goes, listen, I will repay you at the resurrection of the righteous. You will be rewarded by God. He sees everything. And the last, you know, and lastly, which I want to explain for future reference. When I say lastly, don't confuse it for in conclusion. <laughs> Just want to make sure we're all on the same page together. I'm learning to be much more specific in my communication skills. <laughs> lastly, Jesus rebukes what we'll call indifferent people. In verse 15, notice. And when one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. I love this. When I started reading this, I started cracking up. And I got to explain to you why I think it's so funny. Because it was getting a little tense in the room. And, and this is the person that's in every group when things get tense that change the subject. Blessed is everyone. Hey, well, blessed is everybody who reclines in the kingdom of God or eats from the table. And it's like, hey, let's change the subject. You ever been there? It's like, you know, things are getting a little tight around the dinner table sometimes. Subject was brought up. Ooh, we don't want to go there. And somebody go, hey, how about those angels? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's kind of like just change the subject. Man. Like, hey, how's the weather? What's the weather supposed to be like this week? You know, I know right now it's just hot and humid in here. You know, it's like, hey, let's just change the subject. And this guy just changes the subject. You know, oh, good, went to a subject. We can get off that subject and just go to, wow, ever blessed is everyone who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. But notice this, but, uh-oh, contrast, au contraire, as they say in France. Au contraire, you know, contrary to what you just said, let me just tell you a story. A certain man was giving, <clears throat> giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And the intent of the story is to show who will be in the kingdom of God. What we'll say today is, who will be in heaven? They said, hey, blessed is everyone who eats, you know. Hey, we're going to be in heaven. He said, oh, you know, contrary to what you believe, let me just explain to you who will, who will be there. He says, but. He says, and at the dinner hour, he sent a slave out to those who had been invited. Come, for everyone, everything is ready now. The identity of this man who was giving a dinner party as we'll go through is none other than God himself. God who extends an invitation to all people. And it's a matter of how we respond to his invitation. The Bible says that God wishes that none would perish, but all would come to everlasting life. The Bible says that, you know, God so loved the world in its entirety, all the people of the world. Hey, God loves the world, and he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The invitation goes out to all. This invitation went out. In the dinner hour, he sent a slave to those who had uh, been invited. He says, come, for everything is ready now. So to, to understand how this works, it would be like today in our culture, you send out like a wedding invitation, and you get a, a RSVP for the reception. And so all of these people sent back their RSVP would love to come. Well, think about communication back then. Everything would be ready at first, and then he would send the slaves out or his servants out and go gather up all the people who said yes to the invitation and have them come to the dinner party for the feast is now ready to enjoy. And so that's what happened. They, the, the feast was ready. They responded affirmatively. He sends his servants out to go get these people. And when he goes out to get them in this invitation, he finds that they have become indifferent toward the invitation. And he goes on and says, And at the dinner hour, he sent a slave to those to say to those who have been invited, Come, everything's ready. But here we go again. But they all alike began to make excuses. 
You know, before looking at each of the excuses, it's important to understand that Jesus' rebuke of the Jewish religious leaders is the primary application of the parable. Their rejection of God's invitation, his command to repent, his command to receive Jesus Christ as the Savior was met by these feeble excuses. And men's excuses haven't gotten much better today either. Excuse number one. He says, the first one said in verse 18, I have bought a piece of land. I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Now, the first man bought some land and wanted to go see it. So he was either lying or he was a foolish business person. Because who in the world buys the land first and then says, I want to go see it? I mean, this guy, you know, he's just lying through his teeth. And most people who make excuses do exactly that. They just flat out lie. And so he goes, I'm going to go see it. He allowed the claims of business to take priority over the claims of God. You know, as I thought about it, it's still possible for a man or woman to be so immersed in this world that he has no time for God, no time to worship, no time to spend in the word of God, and, uh, you know, and no time to pray, and certainly no time to serve. And all of it is because you don't understand how busy I am at work. Oh, no, I understand. It's just what, what's the priority in your life? What's important to you? Because what I have learned in my life is this. What I believe is important is, is what I will find time to do. That's all it is. When my children were younger. I believed it was important to be as involved in their lives as I could. And you know what? My wife and I, Linda and I, found time to be involved in their life. We went to countless numbers of things because we wanted them to know they were important to us. And yet it didn't keep us from serving God. It didn't keep us from spending time in the Word. It didn't keep us from showing up at church. It didn't keep us from doing all the other things because it's a matter of balance. But at the end of the day, we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We're to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and everything else in life falls into place. And so if God is our passion, we will find time for him. And the point of this is, God was not this man's passion. His business was. Plain and simple. Guilty before God. The second excuse was just as lame as the first one. This guy said, I bought five yoke of oxen, I'm going to go try them out. I mean, try them out. Like what, you're in a horse race? I mean, you know, they plow fields. What do you mean, try them out? Did you buy them before you saw them? They have three-legged oxen, two-legged? I mean, what'd you buy? You know what you bought? They're an oxen. I mean, it's like they're not thoroughbred racehorse here. They just go and they pull, plow, and they dig up dirt. We didn't try them out. And it's the same thing. But you know what? It, it, this excuse is the excuse of what I would call the excuse of possessions. I got me five new oxen. In our culture today, we say things like, oh, man, you know what? I got this, that, and the other thing. You know, it was interesting. I was reading through some different commentaries. One was 60 years old, and this is what it said about this particular passage. We used to go to church on Sunday, but now that we've got the car, we go off to the country for the day. Now that we've got the car, and I went, wow, now that we've got the car, wow, you know, what do we got today? Now that we've got the cars, now that we've got the bikes, now that we've got the dirt bikes, now that we've got the boat, We've got a guy who works for our company that bought a boat, and he said, hey, listen, I want every Friday off through the months of July and August. That's how I'll burn up my vacation. Why? Well, because I got a boat, and I got to use it. And so we're going to the river every weekend for, in July and August. 
And it's like, okay, well, you got the boat. You got to justify having the boat because you certainly, if you're only going to use a boat once or twice a year, it may make more sense just to rent one. <laughs> it's a math problem, but do the math. You know, we hear people like that all the time. It's like, oh, well, wait a minute. You know, now that I got the possession, the possession has possessed me. Now that we got the house in the mountains, got to go to the house in the mountains because otherwise we can't justify having a house in the mountains and the extra payment if we're not going to use it all the time. We got the house in the desert, got to use the house in the desert. Got the house at the beach, got to use the house at the beach. We got to justify our possessions. And it's always spiritualized by it's a great family bonding time. And you know what? And, I, and, don't, and don't get me wrong on any of this stuff because some of you, you jump off immediately and you know, it's like you go way over here. Look. There's nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. There's certainly nothing wrong with oxen or, you know, or cars or boats or bikes or, or beach houses or mountain houses or desert houses. You know, I, 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 people drive me nuts when they, they just go, that's all they hear. Well, look, all I'm saying is this. There's something wrong with it if God gets put on the back burner for these possessions. That's all I'm saying. Then it becomes sin. Then it's wrong because it masters you and our master should be our God and not our things. That's when it's wrong. You need to evaluate your own life. You need to stand before God in your own life. You need to pray, am I inflexible in this area? And is what the man just said up there, is that truth from the word of God? And you've been trying to get it through to me, but I haven't been willing to listen because I don't want to change my mind about these things. We've already made the purchase. See, it becomes wrong when God is no longer a thought in our life. And don't do the token, well, we'll from now on we'll do a five-minute devotion when we're at the river. You know what I'm saying? It's like, look, you know, God's sharper than all this. It's like, oh, I think we can figure out a loophole. It's like, come on, you know, just pray about it. Go to God about it. Seek his, his, his truth. And, you know, God, is there, are there things in my life that hinder me in my obedience to your call. My obe- your, my, 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 your call in my life to serve you in some way. If there is, then show it to me so I can get rid of it. Because you know what? Nothing is more important than my relationship with you. And the third one was an interesting one. The guy says, yeah, I got married. I have a wife. I can't come. She won't let me. <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, I don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, but today I hear people all the time, it's like, you know, they're plugged in, they're ministering, they're serving, whatever. And then, you know, they're doing it because they're single, they're alone, they're lonely. So, God, I'm stuck with just serving you. And I'm praying that you will bring someone into my life. Oh, and then he does. And then you go, thank you, God. We don't have time anymore. We're just so much into each other. We're just like, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to go do that. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, you know what? You just prayed, you know, God to bring you a companion, not a companion that would be a stumbling block in your relationship with God, but a companion that you can serve the same God together. And I see it all the time. I hear it all the time. Oh, Lord, please bless us with children. And then you have a child, and it's like, oh, it's too hard to get up to go to church. What? <laughs> what? How does that happen? Well, because it's not a priority. I see guys in Major League Baseball all the time. They, they go to chapel. Single A, double A, triple A. God, get me to the big leagues. Then when they come to the big leagues, it's like, I'm here. Don't need God no more. And I just go to him and say, you know, same God you prayed to get, up, get you up here is the same God's going to keep you here if it's his will. See you on Saturday night or Sunday morning. 
I saw a couple of guys a couple of weeks ago. I said, man, I haven't seen you at all. But I know because I'm in, you know, I kind of oversee all of our minor league system. And I know because guys would tell me, you used to go to chapel all the time when you were at Salt Lake. I saw your name on the sheet. People go to chapel. I saw your name. I haven't seen you yet. Why not? He was there. <laughs> because it's just the truth. It's like, look, you know what? How in the world do we allow the blessings or the answers to our prayers hinder us from our walk with God? See, in the Old Testament, if you were married, you could get out of going to military service for the first year. But how does, it, how does this compare to going to military service? This, this, is, this is an absolute you know, violation of God's word. Why didn't he just have her go with him? Why didn't he extend the invitation to her as well? See, we need to really look hard into our own souls about some of the things that we're hearing and learning today. And I don't have an answer for you. I just know what the Word of God says, and I just share it. It's between you and God what you do about it. But you know what? I just pray that we're not hearers of the Word and not, and, and not doers, but that we're hearers of the Word and doers as well that we act upon everything that we hear. You know, their indifference was met with God saying, you know what, wow, you know what, nothing is more important than receiving and responding to God's invitation. What's the greatest commandment? That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. What does God want us to do when we're convicted of sin in our life? He wants us to confess and agree with God. What we're doing is wrong. God, you're right. Thank you for helping me see it. And I'll repent and I'll turn from it and I'll turn back to you and I'll get back on track so that I could be more effective in my service for your kingdom and for your glory. Now I want you to notice what happened. The party goes on without him. Verse 21, And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. And the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done, and there's still more room. And the master said, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come, that my house may be filled. He said, I want you to go out and reach the world with the word of my invitation to them. I want you to go out and tell people that they need to repent of their sin, and they need to respond to the, to the, to the finished work of Christ by grace through faith. I want you to go out into the world and tell people that I love them, but they need to repent. They need to respond by grace through faith to the finished work of Christ, and they need to receive Jesus as their Savior, their only Savior from sin. I want you to go out into the highways and the byways in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the outermost parts of the world. I want you to reach this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the Great Commission, and that's what we see happening here. And the servant tells him, and he says, look what's happening. And the parable obviously pictures Jesus' invitation to experience the blessings of God's kingdom by responding to him. And the sad indictment of the dinner party is this, for I tell you that none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. What men? Men who make excuses to not respond to the invitation of God. Men whose businesses are more important. Men whose possessions are more important. Men whose relationships are more important than the only relationship that will save them from hell. And that is faith in Jesus Christ. He says, they will have none of the kingdom of God. They will not be in heaven. They will be in hell, as the word of God says. And the reason is not because I didn't extend an invitation. The reason is because they rejected my invitation. And they would not respond to my grace and my mercy. 
That's the only reason people will be in hell. is because they have refused to accept God's love in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. What's the impact of the parable for those having dinner with Jesus and also for us today? I'm presuming that silence still prevailed at the dinner party when he said not one of those will be coming to dinner. You know, think about it. They were the original invitees, but not one would be admitted to the Messianic meal unless there was a response of repentance. The first invitation that went out came through the law and the prophets and the writings of the Old Testament. And every one of them responded saying, oh, we want to be in. The second invitation came out in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Those who originally said, God, we want to be with you in your kingdom when you establish it. That's why they were always talking about, when are you going to establish your kingdom? When's the kingdom going to come? You know, Jesus, who's going to sit at your right and who's going to sit at your left? And when are you going to do all the things that has been promised through the word of God? They said, they said yes to God in the Old Testament. They said yes to God through the invitation of the law and the prophets. But when Jesus came, that invitation was rejected. They said, send us your Savior. God said, I have sent my Savior. He is Jesus of Nazareth. God, a very God in human flesh. Emmanuel, God is with us. Jesus, Yeshua, he will save his people from his sin. The work of God is this, that you believe upon him, Jesus, whom I have sent. Just as Moses lifted up the stick and a serpent on the stick in the wilderness, so those who will look up at the Son of Man as he is lifted up on the cross and up into heaven will be saved of their sins. And they will be saved from the judgment and wrath of God. They rejected the invitation. They sent the RSVP back. Can't wait till the Savior comes. But when the Savior came, they said no. How many people are in that position today? All their religious posturing was empty. Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God was just pious jargon because Jesus knew their hearts and their hearts were far from God. Be gone for I never knew you. See, they must hear and do his word to avoid judgment. You and I must hear and do his word to avoid judgment. Nothing has changed. His plan is still the same. The question for Jesus' hearers and us is, do we really want to attend the feast? Do we really want to go to heaven? Do we really want to be in the kingdom of God? Or are other things more important? Our portfolios, our cars, our travel, our vacations, our homes, our possessions, our relationships. Men and women, it has cost Jesus everything to prepare the feast. Pain and tears and flesh and blood. Now he invites us to come and to drink the blood that he has shed and to eat the bread that cost him everything. Have you repented of your sins? Have you responded by grace through faith to the finished work of Christ? Have you received Jesus Christ and him alone for the forgiveness of your sins? If so, you will be blessed when you eat at the feast of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity and the truth. God, your truth will set us free from the bondage of sin and the deception of this world and our culture. 
God, it's my prayer that those who are here that aren't sure of their relationship with you will recognize their, your command is to repent, to turn from sin and to turn to God, and to respond by grace through faith to the finished work of Christ, for it's by grace through faith that we are saved. It is a gift from God so that none of us can ever boast. Salvation is from you for all who receive Jesus Christ and Him alone as Lord and Savior. God, I pray for those of us who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, who are children of God by those who believed in Him and have been born again by Your will and not by our own efforts, that we will allow no excuse to hinder us from keeping us to answer the call to be obedient in our life, that we will not let any possession possess us, that we will not let, allow a business to dominate our time and our efforts and our energy to the point where we have no time for you or what you have called us and gifted us to do for your kingdom's sake. God, we pray that there will never be a relationship in our life that will hinder us from being obedient. God, we love you and we thank you. And our prayer today is that we as your people will not be conformed to this world but transformed by the renewing of our minds through the word of God that we will know what your will is for each of us individually, collectively, that it is good and it's acceptable and it's perfect. And we pray these things in Christ's name, amen.